Our sermon text comes from Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14. Matthew 24, 9 through 14. I'm about to read a 2,000-year-old piece of prophetic apocalyptic literature. Prophetic apocalyptic literature. Now, outside of the Bible, how often do you read things that are over 2,000 years old? Like, think for a minute. Even if you're a reader, like, you'd pride yourself at saying, I read a lot. Even readers, like, how often do you read something that's 2,000 years old? Outside of the Bible, how often do you or anybody that you know read prophetic apocalyptic literature? Is this a common genre? Is this what you normally see on the New York Times bestseller list? Oh, another prophetic apocalyptic literature again. Why do I bring this up? Well, because I want myself and all of us to humbly admit that there is a large gap between our culture and the culture that produced the very piece of literature that I'm about to read from. If we embrace this posture of humility, I believe that we'll be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry with one another if we tend to have different views about what this prophetic apocalyptic literature is saying. For example, when people today hear the word apocalypse or apocalyptic, immediately a lot of us will think, oh, that's a word that means the end of the world, as in the end of the space-time universe. But in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, the word apocalyptic never had that meaning, like never. That was not a concept in their theology. It was not a word that was associated with that concept. The Greek word apocalypsis It simply means to unveil, to uncover. Something is hidden and it's covered over and it's like you're lifting back the veil. Apocalyptic literature then is a way to write to help people see better or better yet to see through, especially the empires and the kingdoms of this world. Think especially the books of Daniel and Revelation. The goal of apocalyptic literature is to get readers to see the empires and the kingdoms of the world as they truly are. So each week, as we journey through these words in Matthew 24, we need to not just see that it's a prediction of future events, but it is an unmasking, it's it's an unveiling. It is letting us know about the realities of the world around us as we learn about the unveiling of the realities of the world around Jesus and his disciples. So if we're doing this right, Matthew 24 may help us turn our heads a little bit see the world on a slant so we can see through the fake news and the agenda-driven headlines. This is what I want you to imagine each week that we unpack Matthew 24. Think about the window blinds in my room, and if the blinds are tilted at a certain angle, if I look at them straight on, they appear to be completely closed and shut out all the light and all of the outside from my view. But if I turn my head just a bit, I get parallel with those blinds. I'll be able to see right through them into the outside world. In the same way, the prophetic apocalyptic literature that we're going to read is like that. The kingdoms of this world want to hide and cover up. They have things they don't want us to know. But the Bible in general and this literature in more specifically, it's going to tell us and reveal to us what's really going on. So let's read it. Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to start in verse 1 for the sake of context, but we're going to focus our time and attention in verses 9 to 14. 
Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, do you see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here on one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and see that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So how do these verses help us see our world differently? How does this apocalyptic, prophetic literature help us tilt our heads, see through the blinds, into the outside world, and not get blinded by the veilings of this world? One short sentence to summarize the big idea. This passage of scripture, it tells us about how the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church will not be stopped. Although this is not in the news headlines, this will not be in front of your face, you need to be reminded that the church of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel will not be stopped. No matter how bad things get outside of the church, no matter how bad things get inside of the church, true followers of Jesus endure to the end. And this is what Jesus is calling his disciples to in this passage, endurance persistence, perseverance. The word endure that he used here, it literally means to stay behind someone or to wait. I want you to picture when you hear this phrase and you think about today's message, the picture of Jesus as our, our captain on the battlefield. And he's asking us to be faithful soldiers who stand behind him, to stand behind, to hold our ground, to remain under a load. This is the kind of perseverance and endurance that Jesus is talking about. It does not merely mean staying on Jesus' side. Well, naturally it means that. You'll see in our text quite plainly that people are forsaking the message and the ways of Jesus. They are choosing the wrong side. They're betraying and turning against the followers of Christ. But it's more than that. It's actively fighting for his cause. It is proclaiming the gospel to all the nations, as you see in verse 14. And so to sum things up, We've been looking through this chapter slowly, bit by bit. Jesus is answering a question in verse 3. Let me read it again. On the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And I've mentioned for the last two weeks that Jesus is answering them with this question about the destruction of the temple. When will these things? And then you answer the question, well, what are the these things that he's talking about? It's the things that he just mentioned in verse 2. The destruction of the temple. Not one stone left on top of another. And he's talking about the end of the age. 
which also begs another question. The end of what age? The end of the age of the space-time universe where the whole world ends? Well, if you're a Jewish person, no. If you go back 2,000 years from now, people didn't talk that way. There was this age, the present evil age, where the Roman Empire ruled, and they wanted that age to end, and they wanted the new age that was dawned by the coming of the King, by the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one. When he comes, he would overthrow the, the rule and the reign, and, and the new age would dawn. That's the age they're longing for. When is that coming going to happen, and when is that age going to dawn? And so we saw in verses 4 to 8, that Jesus said that there will be things that are happening, but those are not signs. They are more like birth pains of a woman that's in labor. Things that many Christians today, as we looked at last week, will say, oh, it's the end of the world. Earthquakes are happening. There's wars and rumors of wars. No, these are not signs of the end of the age, the end of the first present evil age in Jesus's generation. Instead, we see that there are troubles for the whole world, and Jesus says these are going to be normal, like a woman having birth pains. And in the same way, those troubles for the whole world, there's troubles inside of the church for followers of Jesus. And that's what our section is all about. It takes the broad, bigger picture of troubles and tribulations and says, look, on a cosmic scale, wars, rumors of wars, false prophets, people that say that they're the Christ— all kinds of crazy chaos is going on all around the world, but you need to stay firm, hold fast, don't give in, don't fear, don't panic. For followers of Jesus endure to the end with crazy chaos outside of us and even troubles within our own circles. So this week's section is talking about things, again, that are not signs. All these things must take place in the next 40 years after Jesus says these words. And then the end will come, the end of that age, the destruction of the temple will happen as Jesus predicted. So this is why I've said for the last three weeks, Matthew 24 is first and foremost about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and not first and foremost about the end of the world. Now, when I make a statement like that, that does not mean this passage does not teach us something. It does not mean it's all just happened in the past and there's no sense to which these words have implications for our present or our future. It means that these words teach us how to tilt our heads and see through the blinds and out through to the outside world. So let's just do that. Let's learn how this passage helped the disciples see through the empires and kingdoms of this world. And then let's conclude by seeing how they teach us about our world. So when you're reading verse 9, you'll notice it says, then they will deliver you up. And already you need to start asking, who's the they? Who's going to be delivered up? Where are they going to be delivered up to? Who's the you that he's talking about? Is he talking about all Christians at all time? Is he talking about a certain group of people? And the best guess is actually just to read Mark's account because it seems as if if you've studied some of the Gospels, Mark and Matthew are actually playing off of one another to degrees. And whatever degree that is, I'm not going to debate today, but listen to Mark chapter 13, verse 9. This is the same exact phrase that we see in verse 9 of our, our text. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and the kings for my sake to bear witness before them. See, that's a little bit more specific. Matthew doesn't give us that specific, but I think Matthew means the same thing. They will deliver you up they being the rulers of councils and synagogues. That's more specific. The word for councils is going to be for the Roman government. 
synagogue is going to be for the Jewish Sanhedrin. So this is a reference to courts and councils and synagogues indicating Jesus is not talking about the 21st century persecution you and I deal with, at least not at first, but about the fulfillment of these words in his day, in this generation, as it says later in the passage. After AD 70, the Jewish religious and political system ceased to exist. There were no more councils and synagogues that went around and flogged people. So this fulfillment happens in Acts chapter 4 or Acts chapter 5 when you see the early disciples get arrested and get flogged and delivered up by the Jewish Sanhedrin. And you'll hear these men say, you're not allowed to preach the gospel of Jesus anymore. And they say, what are we going to do? Listen to men or listen to God? Well, I think we're going to listen to God. And so we're going to keep preaching this name. They said, all right, well, we're going to beat you first. And they beat them. And then they left and they didn't kill them. And they went on their way and they were actually rejoicing for the fact that they were able to be counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus, which is what you see in our text in verse 9, for the sake of his name. It's like a badge of honor, for the sake of Jesus' name. In verses 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, you see a little pattern here where verse 9 leads to verse 10, verse 11 leads to verse 12. They deliver you up to tribulation, they put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And I think that reference to all nations refers to the Gentiles, that both the Romans are going to persecute you and the Jews. And so this leads to verse 10. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Verse 11 leads to verse 12. Many false prophets will rise up and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Notice that compete... Uh, the, the repeated refrain of many, 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 four times. It's talking about, I think, the majority. Many people will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. We need to understand that the gospel message of Jesus Christ upsets people, especially Jewish people. Jews responded, as we see predicted in Jesus' word, with vicious persecution. And this persecution was intensified after the temple was finally completed at AD 64. So right at AD 64, the temple that Herod's building that Jesus is talking about is not fully complete. When it's complete, persecution is at an all-time high. In that same year, Nero turns on Christians in Rome and blames them for a fire that burned part of the city. And so now you have Romans and Jews fighting against the followers of Jesus. Christians got scared. So they thought, man, it might be safer to just be a Jew again. Let's go back to Judaism. And Christians then left their faith. They fell away. And they thought that too many other Christians were being too provocative or, or whatnot. And so they decided to start helping the Jews and Romans find troublesome Christians and, and rat them out. And this is what's meant by betrayal. People fell away. Others said, instead of just being on the wrong side of the Roman Empire, let's help them out. Let's betray them. This was hatred. And so we see in verse 9 and 10, the relationship between the increasing persecution leading to people falling away. In verse 11 to verse 12, the false prophets also led people astray and, and created a state of lawlessness. Uh, lawlessness being just immorality, uh, disobeying God's law, which was a res result into the love of many growing cold. I think this is somewhat similar to what Jesus says in Ma Matthew's Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. You'll know a tree by its fruits. You'll know a false prophet by its fruits, by the character of their lives. You'll know a follower of a false teacher by the fruit of their lives, the lawlessness, the coldness of their heart. 
And these savage wolves of these false prophets, dressed up in sheep's clothing, this is more than just bad teaching and intellectual errors. These teachers want to lead people back to Judaism or into a kind of faith that doesn't prize love. They will encourage rebellion against Rome, taking up the sword and assure them, whoever they're talking to, that God's victory will be just around the corner. Our last verse, verse 14, says that then the gospel will be preached in the whole world. And for many of you, this may be one of those sticking verses where you're thinking about the thesis that I've given the last three weeks. So wait, you're saying that Matthew 24 is first and foremost about the destruction of the temple. But here Jesus says that the gospel is going to be preached throughout the whole world. And again, this is where I want you to have humility, myself included. Love one another, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Don't get angry with me. I love evangelism. I love church planting. I love praying for and preaching about the spread of the gospel to the nations. I think it's vital. I think it's commanded. We're going to close our service with Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. Embassy Church's mission slogan that I helped form when its first days were beginning was, we exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making disciples of all nations. So not for one minute do I want you to hear me say that I don't think Jesus cares about evangelism to the nations throughout the whole world. I just want you to make sure you're hearing what Jesus is saying here in this context, which is, I don't think he's talking about global missions the way you and I think about global missions. Because he's talking about his generation. He's saying that the destruction of the temple will happen, and then the end of this age will happen, and the destruction will happen after all the gospel is preached to all the nations, all the world. But the world in Jesus' day is not the world when you and I think of it. If right now when I say all the world, you immediately pop into your head the globe. You know, the spherical globe that spins around at that 23 degree axis and, and, and orbits around the sun and all the things that you think of with the shots that we've had from our, our space, NASA, telescopes, etc. That's not the world that they're talking about. They're talking about the Roman Empire. In fact, the word here is not the cosmos world of like the entire creation. It's the world for the inhabited land. It's a more literal translation. So, so there's the issue of the wording itself. But there's also another thing. Throughout the Bible, this phrase and the language surrounding the New Testament just talks about the spread of the gospel to the Roman Empire as like it's the end of the world because it was. That was the end of the world for them. The inhabited world was the world of the people, those living around the Mediterranean Sea. More narrowly, if you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1, you're going to see that it's talking about the Roman Empire, and it's the same phrase again that's used in our text. Or in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, there was a famine that went across the whole world. It's talking about a famine that went across the entire empire. Or in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, the apostles are accused of turning the whole world upside down by their teaching. But we know at that point, all they've done is taught in Asia Minor and Greece, not China, not North America, not South America, not the South End of Africa. They're not thinking about those parts of the whole world. But yet they'll use the language of the whole world because it's the whole Roman Empire. All of these textual evidences in both the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament should give us caution to quickly assume that Jesus means global missions to every single tribe, tongue, and language as you and I normally think of that if you're familiar with that teaching. The point should be this. The gospel will go outside of Jerusalem. 
Indeed, it certainly did after the resurrection to Jerusalem, to Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. And I think that's in fact what the whole book of Acts is trying to tell you. It's structured by saying the gospel went to Jerusalem. That's Acts, Acts chapters two through eight. Then after chapter eight, it goes to Judea, and that's chapters eight through 13. And then from chapters 14 to the end, Paul is in Rome, the end of the world. Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul can speak of the gospel bearing fruit in the entire world. Or in the scripture passage I read for us early in the service, Romans chapter 15, he says, I make it my ambition to make Christ known where he is not yet known because I don't want to lay my foundation on anyone else. I've already finished my mission of the gospel to all of these other places. The gospel has been made known into all the nations, he'll say in Romans 16, 26. All this should make us see that woodenly or on the surface, literal reading is probably not the best way to read verse 14. The good news of God's kingdom was being proclaimed all over the Roman Empire before the end of the age, before the temple was destroyed. So I would not encourage you to interpret the end of the world here as some have often taken it as a spurring on of evangelism. Guys, the end of the world's going to happen if only we finish the mission of the gospel and spread Jesus' name. Once everybody hears about Jesus, then Jesus comes back. As often has been a slogan, evangelize to finish and bring back the king. And it's usually this passage of scripture that supports that idea. I'm not convinced Jesus is talking about the end of the world in that way to his disciples. But I do think, and we surely know, Jesus does want us to make disciples amongst all the nations and that one day he will return. And the timing of those things he's going to make very plain in Matthew 24 as we keep reading. That only the Father knows. So let's conclude our time with a few thoughts for you and me as we think about if that's what it meant in their day, how does it help us see through our world in our day? I would first say persecution is not the greatest threat to the church. It never is. It never was. Christians repeatedly and continually endure unimaginable persecution, and they always have from the beginning of the church. What really seems to destroy the church, especially in our text, is the internal enemy of false teachers and false converts who lead people astray, encouraging lawless behavior or kind of easy believe grace, oh, it's okay kind of Christian faith that cools the love and passion for following Christ and holiness in the gospel. Because of false prophets, Jesus says, the love of many will grow cold. How is this not a helpful takeaway for all of us? If love for God and others is the key principle for the mark of a Christian, then the opposite of such would be this lawlessness, this cool, hard heart. This ends someone's effectiveness as a disciple. Reminds me of Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus talks about those who have lost their first love, the devastating effects of a heart that has grown cool for Christ. These verses describe a time of decline when the minority of disciples remain faithful and only the few find the way of life. Broad is the road that leads to destruction and many will find it, but narrow is the road to life, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Second takeaway, I think for us, Jesus plainly says, endure to the end and then you will be saved. It's really not clear what kind of saving he means here. Does he mean saved from 
death? Well, no, he just said that you're going to die anyway in verse 9. So endurance to Jesus and oftentimes means you're going to die. It seems best to understand saving here to be what you and I typically think of in church when we think about saving. Eternal salvation. Full, final salvation. And so he says, endure to the end. Well, well, what end does he mean here? Well, certainly the end of the age, the end of all this turmoil that he's talking about in verses 4 to 14. But I think it's good for us to see this as a reference of for how long it takes, forever long until your life is taken from you, or until the temple's destroyed, the, the main point is be faithful. Endure to the end, whatever that end is for you, whatever that end w- was for the first disciples, and so whatever that end is for us. The promise of eternal, ultimate spiritual security by standing firm, standing behind our captain, our savior, our forerunner. As the writer of Hebrews writes, he uses this word archegos, the one who goes before us. Let's follow in his footsteps behind him. That's the promise for those who continue faithfully with their soldier-like marching orders and not falling out of line. Rather than just physical safety, I think this salvation isn't healing from the physical world or the traumas in it, which Jesus clearly says that they will not be saved from, but rather the eternal salvation of the soul and the resurrection of the new life. Third and final lesson for us. The church's response to persecution and spiritual apathy or cold hearts is to faithfully declare Christ's message, his gospel of the kingdom to all the nations. Whether we're in the first generation of disciples or we're in this one today. Isn't it interesting how with all the dark gloom starting in verse 4, verse 14 before he transitions in verse 15, there's a note of hope and triumph. It's a threatening passage of scripture. Oh, by the way, if you follow me, you're going to be delivered up and killed. Still want to follow me? I mean, this is not really cheery. This is not the sort of thing that helps grow the church in masses and numbers when you just preach through line by line through the Bible, you know? So here we are. Jesus says, follow me, even if it means your death. Why? Where's the hope? Where's the source of joy, encouragement? Where's where's the ballast for your sailboat to make sure you don't fall over when the winds come? It's passages like this. Passages like verse 14 that says that the gospel of the kingdom will continue to spread throughout the nations in spite of, or maybe even because of, the persecution. In fact, one of my favorite things about the book of Acts that's detailing the persecution that Jesus predicted. If you read Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and verse 4, jot that down, read it later. Read Acts 8, verse 1 and verse 4. That's a transition marker in the book of Acts. And it's showing you that the gospel was in Jerusalem. But then... Because of persecution, the Christians started scattering all over Judea. The very little outline I just gave you started in Jerusalem, then Judea, then to the ends of the earth. How did they get to Judea? Answer, Acts chapter 8, because of persecution. It's not just in spite of, it's actually because of persecution. God is always working even when it seems like he's not. That's the slanted vision through the blinds that you and I will never see if we're just looking at the visual things you can see with your physical eyes. You need eyes of faith. You need to turn your head and tilt it with the Bible's perspective of this divine plan of salvation that will never be thwarted and stopped. So give yourself fully and finally to the message and the ways of Christ because there is something greater than the temple that's standing in front of these disciples. A new temple consisted of the community of the followers of Jesus Christ that proclaim the gospel to all nations. 
the gathering of members, both new, who are more expansive and, and taking place of, of the old temple as it's removed. Jesus isn't just saying that the temple will be destroyed and, and the old age will be over. He's saying that a new age is going to dawn and a new temple will replace it that was already in construction after his death, resurrection, and ascension. The church already started to be established. New temple communities were being planted all over the Roman Empire. And then in AD 70, the temple comes crashing down and the age of the present evil reign starts to crumble. This is always how God ends one world and begins another. Jesus is predicting for his disciples what we see precisely happens in the book of Acts. But it's also what we see precisely happens to him. When we finish reading the, Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, we see that it was in fact Jesus who was delivered up for tribulations. Standing before the council and the synagogues, he was killed, he was hated, he was betrayed. It was liars who brought false accusations against him. He was abandoned by his closest companions. The love of many grew cold and some did not endure to the end when Jesus needed them most. And it was precisely because of the failure of those first disciples that Jesus died on a cross and took our place and bore the wrath of God so that you and I could be saved, so that we could have the gift of the Holy Spirit and endure to the end. When God dismantles a world, he forms a new one. And so you and I can expect the same things to happen in our day. We can expect wars and rumors of wars. We can expect, expect conflict and chaos. But remember, this is not the end. We can expect great tribulations and the hatred and enmity of all those that want to try and protect the old ways and the old present evil age of the kingdoms of this world. And many of them directed against Christians, the Christians who are hoping and longing for a better world, a new world with a new kingdom. But even when this persecution happens against us, Jesus says this is not the end. And we can expect false prophets who will mislead many, false teachers of many kinds. There's too many to count today, isn't there, in America? And when we see them, even though they will give great difficulty for many Christians, this is still not the end. And we can expect the opportunities to abound for us to make disciples and witnesses to the ends of the world before the end finally comes, the end, the final end, and then Christ will finally and fully return. If I could sum it up this way, the vision of being able to endure trial and tribulation and temptation is that the world is going to continually talk about this as a great tragedy, like a death. But the Bible will continually say it is not a death. It is a resurrection, it is a new life, it is a new age and a new kingdom. It may look like it's the final end, but it's not the end. Even the end, the final end, the real end, Christ's second coming, that's not even the end. That's just the beginning of the new world. All those who are in Christ are privileged to share these things with one another to help us persevere and press on. And this is why we've been given the spirit within us, a new birth, to gaze at the cross and see if this is what they did to Jesus and it led to this and how much more for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks for the hope that you provided for us in the midst of some very dark and ominous verses, sobering words of reminder that Christians are not exempt from 
trials and pains and sufferings. There is no health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. There is one gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we thank you that it has been proclaimed afresh today. That there is only one hope in the saving death of Jesus Christ who absorbs our wrath. We want to thank you, God, that he, he is the one that we need to put our hope and trust in. We thank you for his reminders here in this passage of Scripture. We pray for the wisdom for us to apply it winsomely, lovingly. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that as we gaze at the cross, as we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of many will grow hot, hot like flaming fire, and that we will burn passionately for the love of you, God, and one another. In Jesus' name, amen.